12. Well, given the fact that Easter was just one week ago, we're going to uh, continue on a little bit thinking in our minds a little bit about the Easter season and the events of what took place uh, on uh, Easter Sunday as we celebrated that last week. And I want you to imagine for just a moment as we kind of change our, our ge- the gears of our minds a little bit and, and draw our hearts to Scripture here in a moment. Imagine giving your life for months, even years of time and energy and investment only to seemingly in one day's time seemingly see it all fall apart. I I don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking and what was going through their minds when they stood on that gruesome Friday and watched Christ go through the crucifixion. I don't know exactly how they felt. I don't know exactly what the conversation in between the disciples would have been, but I, I can't help but wonder that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all that happened on that Friday, that there was a sense among them of discouragement. And even after, by the way, three days later, when Christ does, as we know the rest of the story, rise again, and we understand how that's going to play out, and we understand what's going to happen with the disciples, but we have to keep it in its perspective that over those few hours and three days there, there would have been this tremendous sense of angst. And by the way, being in Jerusalem at that time as someone who had followed Christ was, was no safe adventure by any means. But even after the resurrection, think about the account in Mark chapter 16, verse 8 for a moment. You don't need to turn there. We're going to be in a different text in a moment. But in Mark 16, verse 8, we find these words, and they went out and fled from the tomb, the empty tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. This moment of trying to understand what is happening. What is is going on? We, We know that Jesus had predicted his crucifixion. They didn't get that. They didn't quite grasp that. We know that he even predicted to them that he was going to rise again on the third day. But even in the initial stages of contemplating that and coming to grips with what had happened, there was this sense in which they still didn't quite understand what was unfolding around them. Now let's pause on the first century for a moment and think about our current situation, our current culture. Do we understand everything that's going on in our world today? A culture that is defined by one writer as a non-committal culture. A culture where perseverance is very difficult to find. We know that the disciples and other followers of Christ, they were clearly committed, obviously. But as the Gospels come to a close, would they persevere? What would happen next? What was going to take place in their lives and in their ministry? 
We know in our culture, our mantra of comfort and ease makes commitment and perseverance rather difficult to find, isn't it? In fact, our culture thinks this way. If a job gets too difficult or even worse, it gets boring, we just decide to get another one. If a marriage becomes stale, we just decide to find somebody who's more exciting. If a church doesn't meet a believer's standards, well, then we just find one that does fit my expectations. As we are trying to now understand our culture and the confusing nature of the time in which we live, we also understand that we are facing this challenge of what is increasingly becoming evident in our culture of this declining interest in religion at, in any definition. In fact, one study I read this week said that there is now less than 50% of our country that has any association with any religious group. A recent Gallup poll said that 47% of Americans reported that they belong to some kind of form of worship, any kind. Thinking about those numbers, that is down from 50%, 50 to 47% since 2018, and since 1999, where the number was 70%, and now we sit at 47%. There is this radical decline of membership, particularly even among evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, because of the rise of what is called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. What do we do about that? What's the answer? Is there a program that the church has to implement to just get everybody excited about some big, exciting program, and that's going to change everything? Probably not. But we also understand that as we look at the culture in which we live, that we have to be very, very careful that we understand that what we see is the fruit of a very difficult problem that is very deep-rooted, and that is the root of sinfulness of mankind. We also live in an age in which it's quite interesting that many religious believers, including, unfortunately, pastors, are suddenly now apologizing that they used to believe in the clear commandments of Scripture. It's a confusing time, isn't it? So here is what we have to understand. The moral shifting that's taking place in our culture, the day in which we live, this time of nuns, it's not really new. In fact, here's a little bit of good news for you. When you think about as the dust begins to settle on the day after Easter, on that Monday. You think about the world in which now the disciples are left. There's still confusion. They're still trying to understand what are we supposed to do now? And let's be clear that there was a culture that, that hated them. It was a culture of idolatry. It was a culture of paganism. It was a culture of immorality. It was a culture that had already put Jesus to death. And certainly it was more than willing to put any follower of Jesus to death. They wanted no part of this Jesus nonsense. They would also, I would submit to you, were going to be asked to minister in a culture of nuns. A place in which there were the majority, the masses certainly did not want to accept 
and believe the idea of a resurrected Messiah. So what did the disciples do? Well, before we answer that, let's understand that after the resurrection, Jesus is going to continue on in his ministry. He's going to leave a very specific ministry for the disciples, and he's going to prepare them for this future ministry that he is going to leave behind for them to do. And as the church, we have to remember something very simple and very basic. The task for us really hasn't changed. And as I think we're going to pay, when we get to our text in just a moment, we're going to pay particular atten- attention to what Jesus commanded these disciples to do and how they were supposed to live, how they were supposed to reach out to this culture that they were going to inherit, that hated them, that had rejected the Messiah. By the way, a culture that rejected Jesus, even when many of them saw him, even when some of them had interacted with him, even when some of them had heard him speak, even when some of them had seen him crucified and learned and heard about his resurrection, even in that culture, many still rejected. So we think about the closing of the Gospels, that where we leave the Gospels as they come to an end is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus was then buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus' tomb was then found three days later after his death, which we studied last week, that he had, in fact, resurrected. So now what is going to happen? Well, find Acts chapter 1 with me this morning, and we're going to begin to look. We're not beginning a series in Acts, just we're looking at, we just happen to be looking at the first chapter today. But we want to look at what is it specifically that these disciples were called to do? What were they supposed to do now that Jesus has died, buried, and resurrected? And you know, and I know, because we know what happens, what transpires, is that Jesus is going to return back to his Father, and he's going to leave these disciples behind. What are they supposed to do? Well, let's begin reading Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And I will stop after verse 1 and just make a couple of introductory comments, and then we'll read through the rest all the way down to verse 11 in just a moment. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, let's stop right there. The first book, what's he talking about? Well, the first book being the gospel according to Luke, okay? Acts is a book that is written by Luke. He is the same writer who wrote the gospel Uh, is of that same name, Luke, who is Theophilus. Well, he appears to be a man, possibly a man of some means, some level of um, high-ranking person, possibly, because he's called excellent, and he is referred to in in that way. But Luke is writing to this man, this man Theophilus, and he has already written to him this first book, which is the book of Luke. And so sometimes it's confusing because the way our English Bible is is put together, remember the order of our Bible is not inspired. In fact, some other uh, languages, the Bible is in different order, okay? So these order, our English Bible is not ordered in a way that is inspired by God. It is not it is not in any particular order other than this is just how they were, have been 
arranged. And so it would make sense to me, if I was the one putting this together, that I would have Luke and Acts right next to each other, but that's not what happens. Um, We know that John falls in between those. The reason being that's arranged that way is that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered what is known as a synoptic gospel, and the book of John is a gospel, but it's written in a very different perspective than what the three synoptics are. So for whatever reason, other than that, that John falls in between, but we don't want to lose sight that that Luke is writing to this man, talking to him once again about what has transpired. And notice what he says. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He basically summarizes his entire gospel by saying, I've already told you a bunch of stuff, okay? I've already told you everything that Jesus began to do and teach, understanding that this beginning means that the work of Christ wasn't finished. Everything that he told Theophilus and and writes for us, records for us in the book of Luke, Jesus wasn't done. His ministry wasn't finished. There was yet something to be taken place. And Luke summarizes this gospel, his gospel, in this very simple sentence. And he just says, look, I've already told you about all that. I'm not going to rehearse all of that. And so we've already discussed that. Verse 2, he says, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, so let's just look at these first five verses for just a moment. And understanding that as we begin to see what the disciples are going to do and what is going to happen now that Jesus has resurrected, we see that first of all, he had told them that they were to remain in Jerusalem. They were to stay in Jerusalem, which by the way, was a dangerous proposition. This was not a safe place for them to be. This certainly would have been a tremendous, uh, there would have been a tremendous temptation possibly to leave this area. But notice Luke tells us that for 40 days, Jesus interacted with them. He ate with them. He instructed them. He was preparing them for what was going to take place, for what was going to follow. Now, we have to also sort of keep this in mind as well, is that when we come to the opening chapter of Acts, understanding the Gospels as well, that Jesus as well, he still lived under what we call the Old Testament dispensation. He still lived under the Old Testament law. Even after his death, burial, and resurrection, and he has now has now shown himself to these disciples, and he has proven himself to be resurrected. We are still in Acts 1, caught in this sort of transitionary period of time between the Old Testament law, which was fulfilled at the cross, but notice this, the church hasn't started yet. Remember that Jesus even had said in his earthly ministry, even to Peter when he said, upon this rock, I will future build my church. And even in Acts 1, during this 40 days of instruction, this 40 days of interaction, the church is yet future. 
And during these 40 days, and I'll come back to that in just a moment, notice also during these 40 days that Luke tells us that he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs. Jesus proved himself to be the true Son of God. They already understood that, but there was more convincing proofs, Luke says, that occurred during these 40 days. This word proofs, by the way, talks about something that is so plain that it leads to unquestionable evidence that means something is to be believed and verified in a very decisive way. In other words, if there was any lingering doubt in the disciples' mind that they were following the true Son of God, Jesus proved to them, demonstrated to them, that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, and they were to not depart from Jerusalem. They were to stay there until the time was right for them to do otherwise. And Jesus proved to them, demonstrated to them, he was the Son of God. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because if they now are going to be given this task, which we'll talk about in a minute, they're going to be given this task that they are asked to go out and to fulfill, it's going to be a very risky one. Understanding, as I mentioned, the culture of their time hated them. In fact, many of them are going to die for their faith because of their testimony, because of what they proclaimed about Christ. This was still not going to be a very popular message. So I don't know about you, but I would want to be very much convinced that what I'm saying is accurate and true if I'm going to go out and be proclaiming this message about a resurrected Christ. And so Luke says again, he proved it to them. He demonstrated to them. Now, what were they to wait for? He says at the end of verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5, end of 4, end of 5, he says that John baptized with water, but you are to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, what is that all about? We're not going to get into this morning a whole doctrine on the Holy Spirit, but some people, you know, kind of take this extreme, extreme position that the Holy Spirit somehow doesn't show up in history until Acts chapter 2. That seems crazy to me. So there was, okay, so let me get this straight. There was no, no action, no activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? The Old Testament believer had no access to the Holy Spirit through prayer? I understand that the Holy Spirit anointed some to leadership, and there was some unique uh, dynamics certainly to the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus says that you are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, talking about this coming day of Pentecost in which the church is going to begin, what is going to change about the Holy Spirit's activity among mankind is simply this. Jew, Gentile, race doesn't matter. All these different barriers that have been placed around these people, they are going to be baptized baptized, initiated into one body, the church. There is going to be this new organism that God is going to institute that is going to be the instrument through which he is going to declare the gospel to the coming age. Yes, in Acts chapter 2, the world radically changes. And Jesus tells them that you are going to be baptized into one body. He's not talking about water baptism. That is a picture that we practice that shows that we have been 
baptized by the Holy Spirit in the sense that we have believed in Christ for redemption. But he tells them that there is coming this time in which you are going to be baptized into the body of Christ, into the church, and the church age is going to come, and they were certainly going to be a very important part of this coming ministry. Now, what would you say to that if you were standing there and Jesus says, you know, this is going to happen, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, there's going to be this unique activity that is going to take place in their lives. Well, notice verse 6, it says, so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still hung up on this whole kingdom idea, which was something that they certainly wanted uh, the Messiah to do. This was something that, that they were, in fact, looking forward to, that many people expected that the Messiah would come and to set up his kingdom at that time. And so their initial question is, well, is this the time of the kingdom? Are you actually going to set up your throne now? Are we going to experience the blessings that were promised to Israel in the Old Testament? Are they now going to become a reality? Now, this is a preoccupation by, this is a preoccupation by some of the early disciples. It was a preoccupation of the Jews. That's one of the reasons they rejected the idea of a crucified Messiah. This is the preoccupation with many believers today as well. We get very concerned about the future and what's going to happen, and we watch the headlines meticulously trying to predict what is God going to do. And notice what Jesus says to them. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about that. Don't be completely ignorant to that or don't, don't not, that's a double negative for you, don't not think about that. Don't reject all thinking about that, but don't be so preoccupied with the coming of the kingdom because Jesus says there's something else that is here for you now. And that would be very appropriate for us as the church. Yes, Jesus is coming back. Yes, he is going to begin, inaugurate his millennial kingdom. Absolutely. But the times and seasons of that, that is not for us to know. And it's certainly not for us to spend all of our time on speculation and spend time in talking about that. They're interesting conversations. They're worthy conversations. But a lot of times we spend a lot more time worrying about that than worrying about our task that God is going to give to the disciple to the disciples and thereby gives to us. Notice verse 8. He says, after, look, my father, that's, he's going to, in his, in his time, that will become a reality. But you, okay, let's talk about you. You, disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, he gives them this very specific instruction, okay? Don't get wrapped up in speculation. You, you, are going to receive power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this word power, it talks about ability, power that rests upon a, a person, 
And this power of the Holy Spirit was necessary because the disciples were incapable of fulfilling the task for which they were going to be called. Now, we want to make a very important kind of distinction between us and the apostles, and thus and the ones that are going to be the foundation of the church, the apostles being those men that God was going to use, we want to make a very important distinction. That given the fact that the apostles, when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon them in Acts chapter 2, the church age is begun, there is no New Testament. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. So these apostles were given gifts, particularly gifts of healing and tongues and these gifts that were given to authenticate their calling as an apostle. And as the New Testament went along, you see less and less reference to these healings. You see a decline in the issue of tongues. You have it in places like Corinth and other places where this was an issue. But over time, when the apostolic age came to a close, these what I call and others call sign gifts given to the apostles to authenticate them to the uh, office as an apostle, that came to a conclusion when Scripture was concluded. But it does not mean that the Holy Spirit of God does not reside on the New Testament church. It doesn't mean that we as believers do not have access to the same Holy Spirit. And so he tells them that this Holy Spirit was going to come upon them, like he comes upon every believer when someone puts their faith in Christ, the same power, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, as Paul said, resides in you. And that's an important matter to keep in mind for two reasons. Number one, we can't save anybody. Salvation only comes through the work of the Holy Spirit of God. It is God's Spirit that draws someone to salvation. It is the Spirit that opens their eyes to their, to their lost state. And it is God who works into the heart of a person to redeem them. I was years ago, 20 years ago now probably, I was baptizing this lady up in our previous ministry. And um, she was an interesting lady. Uh, she was, I can't remember how old she was, but she was 90-ish, and she had come to Christ. And she had some physical difficulties. And so we had talked to her about believer's baptism, not necessary for redemption. It's just the picture of what has already happened in your, in your soul when Jesus saved you. And we show, our pool was uh, similar to this one, except there was stairs up and then stairs down. And, I, and she said to me, she goes, I will get in that pool if you have to drag me. She said, I don't care what it's going to take. I want everybody in this place to know my Redeemer lives and to know that Jesus is my Savior. So we got that lady in the pool. Getting her out, yeah, we got her out too. But I asked her, I said, I said man, would you, mind, would you mind telling everyone how you know for sure you're going to heaven? Well, in the nervousness of the moment, she says, and I quote, Pastor Knowles saved me from my sin. <laughs> Pretty sure I did not do that, okay? <laughs> and we made a joke about it. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. That is a work, the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the second reason that's important. It's important because sometimes we rely more on our own wisdom and our own argumentation than we rely on prayer before a holy God for the salvation of someone else. We very often 
take matters into our own hands, into our own strength, into our own abilities. And I would say it this way, all of us, for every last one of us, our greatest strengths always become our greatest weakness. And very often our greatest strengths become a tremendous and even dangerous weakness when we no longer, especially in spiritual matters, rest and rely on the Holy Spirit of God. When we believe, I'm just going to argue this person into heaven, typically it goes the opposite. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about manipulating someone to believe. Instead, the apostles were not given, by the way, Jesus is not going to tell them, go buy a bunch of property and build a really big, nice church building. He doesn't tell them that. He doesn't say, go and learn all kinds of argumentation methods and debate methods in order to win an argument. He's not going to tell them that either. He doesn't even tell them to make sure that they start an Awana ministry or a music ministry. That's not what he tells them to do. Notice what he says to do. That you are to go out and be my witness. This is what you're supposed to do. So disciples and their culture of nuns and their culture of animosity and their culture of rejection and their culture of facing bodily death, they were called to go and to be a witness. This is an interesting Greek word. It actually is where we get our English word martyr from. And some of these men were, in fact, going to be martyred. They were going to be put to death because of their faith in Christ. Now, look, I don't know where our culture is going. I don't know if there will come a time in our country where believers will be put to death or not. I certainly pray that it doesn't become a reality in our nation. But for them, this was something that was very real for them. But when Jesus uses this word witness, he's not just talking, and I don't think even here primarily talking about being willing to die for the cause of Christ. It simply means anyone who can or should testify. This word was used in a legal sense to talk about someone who went out and demonstrated through their words and through their action that their faith in Christ was genuine, that it was authentic. And some of them, even these early, early New Testament believers, they testified of Christ. They were witnesses of Christ to the place that they were, in fact, put to death. Now, notice where they are supposed to do this. He says that, first of all, you are to go into Jerusalem. Now, at that point in time, I would have wanted the, the farthest location away from Jerusalem. But he says the centerpiece of this is for you to obey me and go back to Jerusalem and serve as witnesses. Go back and tell people about what you have seen. Go back and explain what has happened. Go back and talk about the resurrection and what has taken place. And then you're to go to Judea and even into Samaria. And then ultimately you are to take this message into the ultimate reaches of the world, that the, that the 
call for the apostles, the call for the disciples was to be witnesses of Christ. And it was the responsibility of the believers in the first century. And it was the, it was the disciples' responsibility to take this to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. This was what they were called to do. Nothing's changed. This is what we are called to do. What are we going to do? The culture of nuns. There's so many people who don't believe. What do we do? Retreat? Run? Hide? Get into our country club mentality and just say, well, you know, our church is only for believers. Unbelievers bring mess. No, he tells them, you go engage the mess. You engage lost people. You engage people who have rejected the gospel, not in a spirit of arrogance, not in a spirit of condescension, but you go and you serve as a witness of what you have seen and what God has done to you, and you faithfully proclaim the gospel. As it's been said before, it's been said this way, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And the point of that statement is simply, we are to live in such a way that when people, even in our culture of immorality, even in our culture of outright rejection of truth, that we are to stand as pilgrims living in a foreign land, we are to stand as a picture of what the redemptive work of Christ can do in the heart of a person. People can deny the Bible, they can deny many things, but they cannot deny the evidence of a changed life. And by the way, the culture can take a lot of things from us as well. The culture can take our houses, it can take our buildings, it can take our tax exemption, it, it can take all those things. But it can't take our faith. And more importantly, it cannot take our redemption. So it stands to reason for me that as the disciples are wrestling through what all this means for them, and as we wrestle through how do we live in this age that has seemingly lost its collective mind, our call is very simple. Be a witness for Christ. Tell others about what God's wonderful salvation has brought to you and what God has done in your own personal life. Now, Luke continues on in verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There is this hope of Jesus's return. And as I mentioned before, we're not called to this speculation that leads us to the place that we're just standing there looking at the sky all the time. There was something that they were called to do. They were to understand that Jesus would return. They were to understand the kingdom was yet future. They were to live with this sense, and the New Testament talks about this, living with the idea that there was an imminent return of Christ that could happen at any moment in time. Even when we think about the, the book of Revelation so often, the book of Revelation, I always tell people, I get asked from time to time, 
you know, Pastor Jay, you ought to, you ought to preach through Revelation. It's like, okay, I, I'm glad to do that, but I promise you one thing. I'm going to greatly disappoint you. Because most people, not most, many, some at least, take Revelation, they take the headlines of today, and they look for all the secret little details of what Revelation's about, and they start building their timelines, and this is going to happen, and I have my timelines too, and I have the charts, I get all that, but at the same time, at the end of the day, when is Jesus coming back? I don't know, but I know he is. And by the way, the purpose of Revelation is not to fill in every last little detail that you desperately want so you know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Revelation is a letter written to seven churches that were facing persecution to keep the faith and persevere and stay faithful. You know why? Because he's coming again. But in the meantime, in the meantime... Be a witness. Stand out in a culture that has gone crazy, not to draw attention to you, but to draw attention to him. That when an unbeliever sees your life, you should stand out. Not in an arrogant way, but in a way that when people see your marriage, they see something different. They see commitment. They see biblical love. They see a picture of Christ and his church, which is part of what marriage is here for. When they see us interacting with our children, they see a lifestyle and a parenting style that brings glory to God. When they see us in our business actions, we act in such a way that is not caught up in the mantra of current business, business mindset, which is just get ahead and don't worry about who you run over to get there. There should be something different about you. Why? Because you're called to be a witness. None of us know the return of Christ. We don't know the time frame. And rather than expending energy in speculation, let's expend our energy in becoming more like Christ and becoming a more faithful witness for the gospel. And sometimes when we talk about witnessing, I know some of us have been around a long time, and and we have this model of witnessing is a particular model or a particular mode of evangelism, that I have to do evangelism. You know, evangelism happens every Thursday night. That's when evangelism happens. Evangelism happens all the time, all the time. In the sphere of influence that God has given to you, use it as an opportunity to show people Christ. Here are words as your pastor I would prefer to not hear. When somebody says, well, you know, I'm going to make an appointment with him. My friend, he needs Jesus, and I'm going to make an appointment with you, pastor, so you can tell him. You tell him. He doesn't know me, or she doesn't know me. They know you. I don't know what to say. Tell him what Jesus did for you. He saved me from my sin. I have hope in Christ. You know the gospel. I'm not a priest. I'm not some magician that can make people believe. You tell them. Tell them with your lifestyle. Tell them with your words. Show them who Christ is through your love and your words and your actions. I leave you with verse 12. 
Notice what the disciples do. Then they return to Jerusalem. Okay. They did what they were told. They obeyed. Knowing it's going to be a rough road. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Read the rest of the book of Acts. It was nothing but a bed of roses for the disciples and the apostles. Really? Jail, beaten, death, rejection. It wasn't an easy road. It would have been much easier to do the Americana thing and just go sit on the couch and watch TV for hours at a time. They went back to Jerusalem. Why? To be a witness for Christ. And you know, the church is called to doctrinal purity. The church is also called to show people the love of Christ. Most importantly, the church is called to be a witness about who Jesus is, the resurrected Lord. So you know what? In 2,000 years, not much has changed. The culture hates the message. It always has. The culture rejects people who claim absolute truth. Always has. There's opposition and difficulty and challenges and adversity for people who put their faith in Christ. Always has. And the task is still the same. Be a witness for me. Resting in the Holy Spirit of God to do His work in His way and in His time through broken pieces of clay. That's what we're called to do. That's what we are asked to do as believers. Minister the gospel regardless of the challenges and be faithful to Him. You know, I was thinking... As we close today, since this time, since Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, the world has tried very hard to extinguish the gospel again and again and again and again and again. And it will never do it. I've been in closed countries. I've been in places where it's illegal to do what I'm doing. I've been in places where it's illegal to be Christians. And yet there's men and women that are faithfully witnessing for the cause of Christ, and they've been in prison for it, they've lost their families for it, they've been rejected by society for it, and they still witness for Christ. That's not what we are called to do. That's what you are called to do. And so am I. So let's do it. Even if the culture loses its mind, to be witnesses for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the text this morning and the challenge that's before all of us. It's easy to get caught up in 
doing ministry to the point that we sometimes forget the essential part of our calling is to be a witness, to be a faithful proclaimer of the gospel. And that's not just in Sunday services. That's not just on a particular night of the week. It's our lifestyle. It's how we live. It's what we're called to do. And Lord, we certainly have no way of knowing what the cultural winds are bringing. We don't know. But what we do know is that this world is under your care. And while we as frail human beings long for the day that you will return, and we pray even so, Lord, come quickly. We pray for that. But in the meantime, may we never be so caught up in speculation that we forget to be a witness. Lord, you have empowered us, not in our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own abilities. You have empowered us with the Holy Spirit of God to be a witness. And may we do that faithfully, understanding it may not be popular, it won't always be fun, it won't ever be easy. But may we be faithful witnesses for you. Pray that you would give us safety as we drive home this afternoon, and we look forward to being back together again tonight. And we pray you would dismiss us now with your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We hope to see you soon. God bless.